This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Tim Barnett. So he is a Christian apologist that works with Greg Kokel Stand to Reason, fantastic organization. And he runs Red Pen Logic with Mr. B. That's his YouTube channel. And he is the co-author of a book that I'm sure you've heard of by now. And that's the book he wrote with Elisa Childers. It is The Deconstruction of Christianity, What It Is, Why It's Destructive, and How to Respond. And so if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know Elisa's been on here several times and again here recently to specifically talk about this book. So we wanted to get Tim on to talk about it as well. So I really enjoyed our conversation today because we talked about how he got into Christian apologetics, what's up with the red pen, even though it's actually a red marker. But when we get into the discussion of deconstruction, we talk about what he feels is the most nefarious part of this. We talk about how there's technically no end goal, how much of this just sounds like leftism, how Christians kind of have their their theology downstream of culture and downstream of the politics that they persuade with. That's actually where he and I disagreed a little bit. But then we just get into how Christians are not really equipped for this fight and how some deconstructionists deconstructionists actually do understand certain parts of theology, which makes them even more dangerous within this whole uh, movement. We talk about toxic theology, but then we get practically at the end and we just talk about, okay, a person in your life is deconstructing. They've, they're walking away from the faith. They're not going to end up back in an evangelical setting or church. What are we to do with those people? What's the church to do? What are friends and family to do? So I really enjoyed my time with Tim. You'll recognize a lot of the questions from my conversation with Elisa, but we did kind of weave in and out of different things and I really enjoyed his answers. So without further ado, let's get into it. Tim Barnett, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on, Kyle. We are happy to have you here, but I just got one question from the very beginning. Are you recording this from a cave? Because I can like barely see you in there. Is this part of your mystique? Is that what's going on? That, you know what? It's kind of like, yeah, Batman has the Batcave and Mr. Mm. B has like the Mr. B cave. No, that's, uh, we just, we've been working on some new camera, uh, new lighting, new, uh, some new tech, and I am not techie at all. So I had a guy here, friend of mine, um, for probably four hours yesterday, and he was plugging in new stuff. And man, it is like, and so when I came in here this morning, I'm thinking, please, Lord, let this stuff actually work, mm-hmm. you know? And as we were turning things on, and um, and so I'm hoping that uh, that people can see me. Although it does, it, it's a lot darker than I normally have it. Hey, I will tell you, uh, I'm not very tech savvy either, but I do at least know how to turn the brightness up on video on the back end. So we'll see about that. But to all you tech guys yeah. <laughs> out there, when you're working with people that are not techie, all we need you to do is to create a single button for us that once we press it, everything works. Mm. So lights turn on, cameras turn on, everything's in focus, everything sounds great. So tech guys, is it really that hard? Yeah. Just let us hit one button. But to launch in here, Tim, uh, we need to kind of set the stage. You know, I talked about you a little bit in the intro and gave everybody an idea of who you are. But you mm-hmm. are a Christian apologist. You're kind of in this Christian apologist space. But you weren't doing that since you were like three or four years old. So I'm not sure what you wanted to be when you were growing up. But now you're doing TikTok videos and YouTube stuff. So yeah. you have about 60 seconds to take us from early sure. childhood to being a Christian apologist. Ready, set, go. All right. So I grew up in the church, um, but it was one of these things where we didn't go very deep. And Mm -hmm. so I knew kind of some of the things of what we believed as Christians, but not why we believe them. And uh, and I was good at science and math. So I went uh, into university to study engineering, Um, but that morphed. I fell in love with teaching. In fact, I spent a lot of time helping my fellow, you know, friends, students, um, with tests and that kind of thing. And so I thought maybe I could make a living at this. So got a degree in physics and science, but on the way I was answering a, a lot of challenges that my friends had about Christianity. I didn't know what apologetics was at that time, but I, I found myself doing apologetics. They'd ask me a question, how do you know God's real? And then I'd go home and, you know, look for answers. And at that time, all I knew was Google. So I just Google it, you know, and found some atheists and found some, some Christians and found this world of apologetics. And uh, from there, um, man, I was a teacher for a little while, had a blast doing it. I love teaching. Um, But then this side gig, teaching apologetics, really started to take off. And uh, soon it became it became a job, you know, I was getting a ton of events and then stand to reason the ministry I work for, um, based in Southern California, although I'm Canadian, people probably pick up the accent. Um, (laughs) they, they offered me a job about eight years ago and, uh, I've been just kind of riding this wave ever since. It's really cool. 
Well, Stand to Reason is awesome. Greg Kokel is awesome. He was actually one of the very first interviews we ever did on the show. His book, Tactics, is a must-read for everybody. Yeah, and I think everybody cool. found out you were from Canada when you said the word about, uh, you know, earlier yeah. in this show. I think you gave yourself away on that. Now, before I, I yeah. get into some more stuff on on the stuff that you're doing now within Christian Apologetics, you talked about growing up inside the church. So I did not grow up mm. in the church, but I grew up in Oklahoma the belt buckle of the Bible belt. And so because, you know, we went to church occasionally and because we didn't swear in public and because we listened to country music and occasionally voted Republican, we thought we were good enough to, you know, to go to heaven. But for you, you know, do you see any dangers? Because obviously my boys, they're three Mm. and one, I'm raising them in a Mm. Christian home. I have some of the same concerns in kind of reverse Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, we're going to Christian school. We're going to, you know, church every week. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the Bible inside the house, but I've seen kids that grew up in that environment. They turn out to be sluggards or deviants or whatever. And so it's just like, it's almost, it almost gives a, I guess, power to the Calvinists that are like, well, Hey, they're either elected or not. It doesn't really matter how you raise them. So what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could spend an hour talking about this, man. I, the way I the way I think about it is, look, we often do a decent job telling pe- our kids what to believe, um, but we don't do a good job saying telling them why we believe it. And so, look, I got some beliefs from my parents that I still hold today, like like they said, "Hey, God's real," and I just said, "Okay, I accept that belief." You know, early age, five four years old. Okay. God's real. I accepted the belief like I was accepting a Christmas present. You know, thank you very much. I'll take it. But they also told me Santa Claus was real, right? And so there were there's beliefs that they gave me that it turned out, wait, that's not that's not right. That's not true. And so, you know, you got to figure out which ones are right and which ones are true. They also, you know, they told me that brushing my teeth will prevent cavities. All right, fair enough. But I mean, I do, and I do this when I when I talk to audiences, I say, how many of you believe that uh, cracking your knuckles what will that what will that cause and they all say arthritis right. not, true. not true harvard studies done not true or you know crossing your eyes will make them stay that way not true and then i, I always finish with this one i say swallowing your gum will stay the gum will stay in your stomach for how long and everyone yells seven years right. and i'm thinking how did we ever come to believe that right what if it go, look at Whatever you eat today, it's going in, it's coming out probably like this week at some point if your digestive system is working properly. So so it's it's just interesting. We take in beliefs and sometimes they're not true beliefs, sometimes they are true beliefs. We gotta figure out which ones are which. And here's the here's the thing. Jesus, when he spoke about the parable of the soils, he talks about this one particular soil. Uh, he calls it the rocky ground. And he says, look, there are these, these individuals that um, this seed that is in this rocky ground and it springs up like right away. The problem is it doesn't last. The sun comes and scorches it. Now he tells us what, what that parable means. This is Mark chapter four for people. They want to look this up. Um, and he says, look, these are the ones who received the word with joy, at least initially, and they endure for a while. But then he says, persecution and tribulation come on account of the word. And then he uses this term, they fall away. That's his term, not mine. They fall away. So what we need to be doing is is not just telling them what to believe, but also preparing them for that faith crisis um, or those big questions or doubts that come. And I, so I tell people about this parable. I call it the parable of the biosphere. And now some of your audience, I mean, I'm 40. There was a movie in high school called Biodome, you yeah. know, Polly Shore. Shore, you know, it was a, it was a funny, you know, it was a classic. And uh, of course, Polly Shore, he gets, he kind of gets locked in this biosphere, this biodome, and he's got, they've got to live there um, for a certain amount of time. Now there's an actual place in Arizona called the biosphere. It's called biosphere two. The earth is biosphere one. This place, this ecosystem, completely glassed in enclosure, was designed so that, man, if we, we want to at some point put people on, say, Mars, well, how would we do that? Well, we need a perfect ecosystem, the right temperature, the right oxygen, the right um, you know, atmosphere, all those things, water. And so they did this experiment in real life. 
And uh, one of the problems, at least this is kind of, I don't know if this is a wives tale or if this is the real thing, it's hard to find a source on this, but they say that the trees would grow up to a certain height and then they just fall over. And the scientists were like, what's going on here? We got the water right, we got the soil right, we got everything right, what's going on? They forgot to account for something. They forgot to account for wind. Because it was completely enclosed, the tr and it turns out when trees in the real world grow up, they often have wind pushing against them and that causes their roots to grow deeper. Now, if there's a pastor listening right now, this will preach. This is your Sunday sermon, okay, right here. It is like, we need to be pushing our students like wind, offering challenges so that their roots will grow deeper. And my fear is, and there's a, you know, we could go into this. My fear is we have this isolationist model in the church. Let's isolate our students, our kids from the challenges that are out there but they end up having no root in themselves. And then they go off to whatever university, they hop on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, they see a challenge and they think game over, we're done. There's no response to this. And they, they're like that tree, they just fall over. So, so we need to do a better job at just man training, just like you train in a gym on the speed bag or practicing holds and moves and this, because there is an aggressive opponent that is out there waiting to devour our young people. Um, you know, he goes by many names, but he's the father of lies. And uh, and there's a lot of lies out there that, that us apologists need to be combating with truth. Hey guys, real quick. Here recently, I went on a hunting trip with a group of guys and one of the guys had lost 50 pounds on the carnivore diet. And some of you guys don't need to lose a bunch of weight, but you're trying to maximize your overall health. And a lot of you are experimenting like me with the carnivore diet. But the problem is, is you don't have a cattle operation that you can trust to get you high quality beef. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends, the official beef delivery partner of Undaunted Life. Primal Beef. Primal Beef is a cattle operation owned and operated by Sean Glass. He's a retired Navy SEAL that has partnered with Jocko Willing to launch Primal Beef. So what makes Primal Beef different from other fly-by-night beef delivery companies? It's a combo of the following. All-American Black Angus cattle. The beef comes from one farm. That's one farm in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. The beef is all natural, no hormones ever, no mRNA ever, and no vaccines ever. And after slaughter, the beef is actually dry aged and then hand cut by artisan butchers and then flash frozen to ensure that it maintains tenderness, marbling and flavor. And here's another really cool thing for every box sold. Primal Beef donates meat directly to a member of America's Special Operations Forces through the C4 Foundation. So you can take pride in knowing that your purchase will help literally put food on the table for America's finest warriors. Stave off veganism and try Primal Beef out today by going to www.primalbeef.com. That's primalbeef.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 10% off of your first order. The great thing about that promo code is you can use it and stack it on other deals as well. Again, that's primalbeef.com, promo code Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E to get 10% off your order. Several things there. Number one, Viva Lost Biodome. So there's a reference to everybody that uh, watched that. I haven't seen that yes. movie in about 20 years. But but also, I think it's overall, we talk about resilience here a lot because I don't really care about strength because strength wanes over time. Mm. It's resilience, it's ability mm. to bounce back. And if you're clearing all the mm. obstacles out from in front of your children, you're not creating resilient children. You're creating weak yeah. children. Uh, the Coddling of the American Mind by uh, George uh, Lukanoff mm. and uh, I forget the other guy. Um, but th that's a great book to kind of say, like, look, what you're doing to your child is not serving them in the way that you think it is. But this isn't a parenting mm -hmm. conversation today. I do want to kind of get back to what you're doing uh, in terms of your professional apologetic stuff. And then we've got some, some book stuff to cover today. But you've got a YouTube channel that has done really well and it's TikTok mm -hmm. and all that, Red Pin Logic. So I guess my, my question is just briefly describe kind of where that all came from. But here's my biggest question about that. What's up with the coffee cup? What's up with the red pin? And actually, why is it actually not a pin? It's a marker. You're not fooling anybody, Tim. Yeah. It's a marker, not a pin. Why are you calling it red pin logic? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, man, I feel like I've been exposed as the fraud right. that I um, am, you know. Um, so we started Red Pen Logic during the pandemic, and it was really a response to, hey, I can't travel and teach and speak like I normally do. So what are we going to do, you know? And here's an example, by the way, when people talk about evil and suffering in the world, we often as Christians talk about God using evil. 
He permits evil for some kind of reason. We see it in scripture. And here's just one, okay? And I'm not saying this is the reason there was a pandemic, but I'm saying when I'm stuck here in Canada and they we can't meet in our churches, we can't meet. I mean, the government is like going full totalitarian, like you guys aren't allowed to breathe. You know, people are walking down the sidewalk with masks on, you know, on them by themselves. This is crazy. Well, how are we going to reach people? I, uh, I uh, started a YouTube channel. I went to Stand to Reason and said, hey, there's this thing I want to do. As a teacher, former teacher, what we would do is get out the red pen and we would, we would correct because we care. This is not to put mm-hmm. students down. Any teacher knows that. It's like, I'm not making fun of my students with a red pen. I'm saying, hey, you know your physics problem here? You made one misstep here and that led you down the wrong direction here and that's why you got the wrong answer. So if you had you know, caught this, then you would be on the right, the right path. And that's all we're doing. I'm, I'm taking tweets and memes and TikToks, you name it. And we do it like with a physical red pen on some mm. graphics, but we're also doing it kind of metaphorically, picking up the red, you know, actually Sharpie. And, and then here's, here's one, two, three reasons why this argument on TikTok doesn't work. Um, you're right. It's not a red pen because red pens are so stinking small. Mm. And I'm like, I got this thing. I got the cup, you know, out in front of me and I want people to see what I'm doing. So I'm like, what has a big red lid? Well, Sharpies do, you know? And, uh, and so I uh, toss that in the cup and, and, um, and here we are today, you know, and it's kind of become, it's become this almost like a character, you know, mm. like, uh, I think of the red pen, like, I don't want people to watch Mr. B critique a challenge and think, I can't do that. Look, it's it's like you can do this too. You need to pull out the red pen and we can get you trained up. We can get you thinking. And that's all the channel is designed to do. It's not to answer every challenge. It's not to go super deep. Hey, if you want to go deep, go to Mike Winger's channel, uh, channel. You know, Mike Winger, the Bible thinker, he has like hour long videos. Um, you know, women in ministry, 12 hours. That's one video. If you want quick bite size content, that's what you're going to find at Red Pen Logic. Well, give, I give you a minute to state your view on TikTok. Okay. I play usually the whole video and then I'll take two minutes to respond. And oftentimes you need way more than that. It's easy to make a claim. It's a lot harder to refute the claim because there's a whole lot of things you got to unpack. So that's where it all came from. Well, I was going to say just the distillation process of information is actually a skill set that people don't really understand. And so, because people, Mm. they ask me like, you're a podcaster. What does that mean? What do you do all day, every day? I'm like, okay, well, three times a week, stare at a blank screen and turn that into an hour's worth of content. That's my job. But the other thing is, is take Mm. a book that's somewhere between 200 and 500 pages distill it down to what is actually digestible to the majority of the populace Mm. of your audience. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do, but that's what I'm going to attempt to do right now, because we are talking about your new book that you co-wrote with Elisa Childers, one of our favorites on the show. It's Mm. called the deconstruction of Christianity, what it is, why it's uh, destructive and how to respond. And so first Mm. of all, from the very beginning, you co-wrote this with Elisa. So I want to know where that came from, because I will say as a reader, it was kind of distracting to me because I didn't know who was talking. And so I was trying to judge you, but then I was actually judging Elisa. And then it was like, okay, I can't Mm. keep any score here, but I guess why write it? Why co-write it? Why make it about deconstruction? Mm. Why is that a big enough subject to where two uh, big thinkers in this space need to spend time on it? Yeah. So we, uh, good question. We, a couple of years ago, um, I was asked to do a kind of a Bible study for a camp and uh, it was a week long thing. So I had to prepare material for Monday to Friday and it was an hour's worth or so, hour and a half of material each morning. So um, I, I, they asked me to do it on deconstruction. At that point, uh, man, I think Joshua Harris had come out. People are, might be familiar with I Kiss Dating Goodbye, this best-selling book mm-hmm. about purity culture from the 90s and um, and the influence it had and actually some of the damage it caused um, for for some people. And uh, and there was Marty Sampson, Hillsong. I mean, he sings with Hillsong. I mean, I'm not a huge Hillsong fan, but there's a song that Marty Sampson wrote, Oh, praise the name. It's a it's a really good song. Um, and there was others, you know, we could go down the list. And so they were like, what's going on here? Everyone wants to know, what is this thing called deconstruction? 
So I started putting material together and uh, I was delivering this stuff, this material and sitting at the back of this chapel that probably looks more like a barn from the outside than an actual church and at this camp. And I, I realized that there's a connection between deconstruction and progressive Christianity mm. because a lot of people who end up in progressive Christianity go through a process that they're calling deconstruction. So I, I messaged, I sent a text message to Elisa Childers saying, man, you wrote the book on progressive Christianity. Yep. So when are you writing the prequel, right? This is the book that should have come first. This is before deconstruction. So when are you writing the book on deconstruction? Or this is before progressive Christianity. When are you writing the book? And she said, Tim, I'm way too busy. I'm writing a, another book right now. And so I just jokingly, well, kind of half jokingly said, hey, do you want to write one together? And she said, absolutely, like, let's talk. And then that turned into absolutely, went to the publisher. Here's the thing. It's not just movie stars or it's not just, you know, the, the kind of quote famous Christians who have, you know, music albums or big churches or whatever, who are using the term deconstruction. Um, it is really our loved ones. It is, mm -hmm. you know, it's some of these high schoolers. It's um, who, you know, stumbled on a TikTok video. It's parents who are getting their, their, their student or their, their son or daughter coming to them and saying, you know, I think your beliefs are toxic. I don't want anything to do with you anymore because you believe X, Y, and Z about, you know, gender and sexuality. And so we saw, man, people were hurting, mm. not just the deconstruction people, but the, it was impacting the church. And so we just went on an investigation. I'm telling you, Kyle, we like trying to define deconstruction, trying to like figure this thing out was not easy. Um, we changed our minds on a bunch of things kind of in the process. And what we kind of landed on was, you know what, deconstruction is taking a certain form and it is just dangerous. It is, it is in fact deadly to your faith um, if you go a certain way about it. And, uh, and so that's why we, we want to help. We're trying to show people how to respond to this. And that's why I wrote the book. When you talked earlier, you used the phrase trained up. And so I think that's a good thing that this book mm. can be used as, as a almost like a training guide for when deconstruction hits your doorstep, not even for you personally, but just for other people. How can you respond? Yeah. But y'all's definition of deconstruction, which this is very important because some people think, well, deconstruction is positive. I'm going to look at the core tenets and doctrine of my faith. Uh, make sure that I'm solid on it and then I'll rebuild a better house. It's like, that's not what it is. We all define it as yeah. a faith deconstruction is a postmodern process of rethinking your faith without regard or without regarding scripture as the standard. And so we'll get way more into that. Uh, Carl Truman wrote the foreword. The dude's a giant. Uh, he wrote the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's required reading, but it's hard. Mm -hmm. Like even for me, yeah. I would read a page or two and be like, I don't think I'm smart enough to even understand these words whenever they're put into a sentence, but it is what it is. But, mm -hmm. um, well, let's start generically because I, I want to dive into some specifics from the book, but let's let you guide mm -hmm. that. In your opinion, Tim, what is the most nefarious thing about the growing ubiquity mm -hmm. of the deconstruction movement? Yeah, this is this is uh, that's a good question, man, because there's, there's a number of things. But one of the kind of things that we saw in particular was people using the term and kind of it, it becoming like a bait and switch, mm -hmm. like, hey, all we're doing is questioning, you know, yeah. and you Christians got a problem with questioning and all we're, look, we have just some doubts that, and this is the part that we had to tease apart because um, we're not against questions. We're not against even doubts. Like there is a way to doubt properly. We see John the Baptist, you know, we talk about this in the book. John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the guy? Are you the one or should we look for someone else? Mm -hmm. Right. Talk about like a doubt that he has, you know, and so and then Jesus doesn't shame him for it. He actually tells his disciples there's no one greater than John the Baptist, you know. So there's no problem here with doubt and questioning. Deconstruction is different. It's different. Um, and so I think it's really, uh, it's um, nefarious is a good word. When you got guys like Derek Webb, who used to be like lead singer, Caveman's Call, big name in the Christian music industry. And he goes on Twitter and he says, look it, deconstructing is just like reforming. You know, semper reformanda. Yeah. What's yeah. that? Always reforming. Well, I actually did some digging on that. And the, the claim that that phrase, semper reformanda, is actually Latin from a larger phrase, which is ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbi dei. 
Now, what does that mean? You know, go to Google Translate here and we'll, we'll find out. It's the church is reformed and always being reformed or always reforming. Here's the important part. Secunda verbi day, According to the word of God. Is that what Derek Webb's doing? Of course not. Is that what these guys who have TikTok channels are doing? Is that what starting like there's full blown Instagram accounts and their whole job is to ridicule, mock, criticize anything to do with evangelical Christianity. Okay. And that includes not just like the wacky stuff because there is wacky stuff in evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the abusive stuff because there is abuse. We're not denying any of that, but it's like core doctrines like Jesus being the only way. How about the doctrine of final judgment? Hell. How about the doctrine of, you know, the inspiration of scripture? All that's getting thrown under the bus too. So this is like, this is why it's very, it's nefarious. It's insidious. It's, it's like these guys, I think know what they're doing. They lump it all together and they say, yeah, this is why we're out of here. And they're encouraging people to go with them. This is not like I'm just deconstructing my faith. No, some of these people are deconstruction coaches. I know you heard that right. Okay. Deconstruction coaches. What is that? That is someone who's going to help you walk away from your faith. And that's, I mean, and I know the deconstruction. No, no, we're not. We're helping you deconstruct. That may lead you towards, no, they don't want you in evangelical Christianity. That's the one place that's off limits. You can go anywhere. We call it an explosion in the book. You can go anywhere except for where you started. And that is what we would call historic Christianity. Right. And as y'all talk about it in the book, you talk about it in the sense of it's a not so secret agenda. Kind of like remember that phraseology whenever Disney was like injecting LGBTQ stuff in your kids program. And Mm. yet you still go to Disneyland and you still have your Disney Plus subscription. What's wrong with you parents? But I'm going to read this quote here from you guys. One of the main concerns with the deconstruction explosion is the obvious agenda to deconvert evangelicals. There are countless platforms Mm. dedicated to providing a place to welcome Christians into the process of deconstruction. These are promoted as safe spaces, but in many cases, they are carefully orchestrated to foster an environment of doubt and unbelief. You're absolutely right. None of these deconstructionists, the proponents of deconstruction, Tim, none of them actually want you to end up as an evangelical. None of them will actually want you to end up going to a church where uh, the Bible is preached expositorily and exegetically. They they want you at best to end up at a left-wing liberal church or a TED Talky church where there's no depth to anything. But also there mm. there's, to in another way, there's no end goal. And I'll, I'll even kind of take this way and I'll go to the quote here in y'all's book. And y'all were talking about the three things about deconstruction. Number one, deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. Number two, there is no end goal or destination to the deconstruction process. There is just a never ending skepticism of your view. And number three, there is no external authority to tell you what your view should look like. You are the ultimate authority. That goes back to y'all's definition where people are like, what do you mean by postmodernism? That. That right there, Mm -hmm. your truth, standpoint epistemology, secret knowledge, Gnosticism, all kind of Mm -hmm. wrapped up into this witch's brew of nonsense. So talk to me a little Mm -hmm. bit about this this no end goal thing, because we just got through saying, well, there is an end goal and it's deconstruction getting away from the faith. But in the same Mm -hmm. sentence, it's like, yeah, yeah, there there really isn't an end goal. They want you in this infinity loop of questioning things and never actually landing where the Bible says you should. So go with that. Yeah, so I just posted a video uh, a couple of days ago on um, kind of responding to a couple of the thought leaders in the deconstruction movement. One of them is called the Naked Pastor. Now, don't Google Naked Pastor. Okay, I'm just saying, but um, that's not a good thing to Google. Google, but he has a an Instagram account. Over a hundred thousand people follow him just on that one platform. Of course, he's on TikTok. One of the videos he made is he basically says. Um, don't uh, reconstruct into a new theology. And then he tells you why. Because if you reconstruct a new new theology, well, you're just going to have to deconstruct that theology. So just deconstruct. That's what he says. Just live in the deconstruction kind of world. And so that is a never-ending skepticism. This is something actually Paul warns about um, in, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy, where he says, look, there are people that you should avoid. And they're always learn. They're always seeking knowledge, or they're always learning, but never able to arrive at the truth. Mm. Never able to arrive at the truth. And and so we see this all over the place. Where Joe Lumen, for example, another kind of big name on on Twitter, uh, Joe Lumen says, "Look, uh, deconstruction is 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 a process that, frankly, there's no white right way to do it." 
And there's no right place to land. Some people land in atheism, some people agnosticism, progressive Christianity, whatever. But then, as you just pointed out, it's kind of hip, it's kind of a hypocrisy, hypocritical, because they don't want you to land. There's something wrong about being an evangelical Christian. Okay, that is the one place that you're not supposed to land, mm. even though. So they're kind of like talking out of both sides of their mouth. This is what's going on. Um, so this is a huge thing. As Christians, our not so secret agenda is we want you to have a stronger faith. We want you to stand firm in the things that you have been taught. And to contend earnestly for the faith. These are like, this is scriptural, okay? And so they have their agenda. And of course, yeah, don't ever arrive at anything. Just always, and by the way, that's like Derrida. That's, that is very postmodern. That is, um, when it comes to reading, Derrida, um, the postmodern French philosopher, talked about reading a text. And you just like never really arrive at any objective meaning because there is no objective meaning in the text. In the same way, you never arrive at any theological point of view, religious point of view. Why? Because there is no true objective meaning. It's always, at the end of the day, it's whatever makes me feel good. So, right. and this is the big confusion. I mean, and, and Carl Truman talks about this. When you, when you put religion into the realm of subjective opinion, then of course it's just true for you, but not true for me. You know, that kind of thing. It's ice cream. Right. What's well, your favorite flavor? Chocolate, right. vanilla, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and you get points for questioning. So I was thinking as you were talking about from, you know, what yeah. is the woman, the documentary, uh, when Matt Walsh was sitting mm. down with that University of Tennessee professor, and at some point you can see the, the professor, the guy with the kind of the blonde hair to the side and all that, where it got I remember. kind of contentious. At one point, he thinks he's smart, even though he's a moron, but he thinks he's smart. And he goes, well, what do you think about that? And it's like, dummy, you're the one being interviewed. Like this isn't, mm -hmm. this isn't a conversation. This is an interview. You have to give your answers and it's because they think you get points for questioning, but I want to read because mm -hmm. I want to, I want to get into some of this, you know, Derrida, you know, uh, postmodernism thought, but I want to read this quote from the book that'll help us get into it. As we'll see for many in the ex-evangelical community, evangelical is perceived to be synonymous with misogyny, racism, homophobia, and the political support of Donald Trump. And then a little bit later, you talk about the five characteristics of what ex-evangelicals are leaving behind, according to Blake Chastain, who actually came up with the term mm. ex-evangelical. So it's these five things, a literal reading of the Bible, a belief that women are to be submissive to men, a belief in the sanctity mm. of heterosexuality and heteronormativity, and a rejection of homosexuality as sinful, the assumption uh, that the American way of life is best, and identification and partnership with political and social conservatism. So I guess my question here is essentially what this is, is it's leftism, it's progressivism, it's postmodernism, it's wokeism, it's cultural Marxism. So why should we fight deconstruction in a spiritual way when this seems to just be a political cultural movement, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And you're right about that. There, it, there's, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these people who go into deconstruction end up in that kind of deconstruction hashtag into the echo chamber. They vote a certain way right. and they're a part of and, and their political system. Look at when your religious beliefs are just like a matter of personal preference or whatever, and you're no longer or you or you just get rid of your religious beliefs altogether or you think you do. You end up just having that same kind of. Uh, religious fervor for something else, and and for a lot of them, it's politics, mm -hmm. and that's why they're they're so adamant about kind of a certain kind of platform, right? Um, so, I, man, I think that I think that there's a sense in which, of course, as Christians, when it comes to Paul, I mean, we don't just leave politics aside um, because our moral point of view is going to inform, you know, how we vote. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, you know, as Christians, man, our hope isn't in any political system. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And and our hope is in and so we need to understand who Jesus is and and what he taught and what the word of God teaches. And this is the part that's being pushed um aside, rejected, ignored, that kind of thing. So, man, I think your politics flows downstream from your theology. And, uh, and that's why we think, man, theology is like the most important thing um, that we could be talking about. Well, I actually want to ask you about that, Tim, because there's a quote from the book that says, for Christians, politics will flow downstream from theology, to which I would mm. say, not really. I mean, there, there are self-described Christians 
that openly and mm. proudly, Tim, vote for political candidates that are pro-abortion, mm. pro-cutting off the genitalia of children, you know, gender-confused children, anti-parent yeah. rights, et cetera, et cetera. And for ex-evangelicals, it literally is the exact opposite. Their politics mm. is upstream and forms their theology. I think the time of theology mm. for conservatives, for conservative Christians, the times for theology kind of molding everything else, I think that's behind us. Like, I, I mm. you obviously disagree with that because you wanted you wrote that in the book, but what do you have to say sure. to that? Yeah, in response, I would just say, the, even though um, they may not have a theology, that like you just gave an example, say pro, uh, a Christian who's pro-choice, let's just use that as an example. They certainly have a theological commitment, I think, and a moral point of view that is informing their policy. And so, uh, these are like, I mean, and, and you could call this religious beliefs, you can call it your worldview, but ultimately on the day, there are some fundamental beliefs. If you have a fundamental belief that you are, that every human being is made in the image of God, then of course there's going to have, there's going to be ramifications from that. Mm. And, um, but if you don't believe that, or if you believe that, or, or, and I guess this isn't a theological belief. And so maybe you're right about, I'm, I'm, I'm not in total disagreement we could be mistaken on this but some of your site your scientific point of view so there are some christians who don't believe a human uh the unborn is a human being and so that is obviously going to inform their their pro-life um or pro-choice views so um i actually think you know if you're consistent if you are consistent with the orthodox Christian theological point of view, it's, it should inform. And this is why, by the way, slavery was ended. Um, and the first the slave trade and then slavery. It was theological. It was a correct, I should say, theological point of view. Now, whether Christians who were trying to use the Bible to advocate for slavery, absolutely. Those Christians were wrong. Of course. So they were, again, they were using their theology to try to back up their political leanings or their, or whatever to justify. And um, so I think that maybe a qualification there, a proper, correct understanding of scripture and uh, theology should inform all these kinds of decisions that policymakers are, are involved in. Because let's face it, every single time there is a political law, there's any kind of policy or law put it forward, it should be informed by some kind of morality and that morality should be informed by your worldview. And of course, if you're just a relativist or whatever, then you're just going to make up, you know, whatever policies might makes right or, or whatever, whatever right. makes you feel good. Um, and that's, I think, where we're at. I think they're just trying to make policy now that is informed by a worldview that is so self-centered that is um, that is even relativistic. Well, the issue that we run into is there's a, a gigantic difference between objective truth and subjective opinions. Yeah. And so when someone says, well, according to me, uh, you know, one-celled zygote is not a human being, it's like, well, that objectively is incorrect. That is false mm -hmm. because the only place mm -hmm. in the universe where DNA sprouts out of nowhere is when a one-celled sperm cell meets a one-celled egg cell and creates a one-celled zygote. And in that exact moment, cell division is taking place, uh, increase in size mm -hmm. is taking place, nutrition is being processed. You know, we call that life. If we found a one-celled zygote on Mars, people would be, you know, tripping over themselves to say we found yeah. life on Mars. But this same person's like, well, that's just not my opinion. Well, guess what? This isn't ice cream. This isn't, in my opinion, mm. vanilla is better than chocolate because there's no objective truth there, even if the majority of people agree with you on that. And so that's mm. the, that's the big issue that we have here. But part of, uh, part of something that's kind of like, you know, swirling the drain on this whole thing is I feel like Christians, when they listen to these postmodern Christian folks, these deconstructionists, they don't believe them whenever they outright say where they've gotten their ideologies. I'm specifically talking about someone like Kristen Cobez Dumay or Dumez, whatever her stupid name is. The reason yeah. why I'm so mad every time I hear that hear that name is because Justin Brierley booked an interview or a debate between me and her about her book Jesus and John Wayne, which is like a repository wow. for all stupid things ever in the universe, was smashed into one book. And so later on it, it was released that she did an interview with Justin, not a debate. I reached out to Justin. I was like, what happened? And he goes, well, whenever she found out that she was going to be debating you, she pulled out. So Justin booked me with mm -hmm. another Christian feminist 
who found out she was going to be debating me, and then she pulled out as well. So I've got a, a debate with a Christian feminist coming at some point in this in this world, and you know I'm just kind of waiting on that time to come. But I want to read a quote from the book because this kind of gives you an idea about where someone like uh, Dumay comes from. For example, when asked on Twitter how one can best analyze power and cultural systems so as to not be held captive by them, Kristen Dumay responded, I should have a better answer, but for me, it wasn't one source, but years spent reading social and cultural histories, histories of gender, Foucault, Gramsci, Mm -hmm. Adorno, Habermas, learning to be curious about how the world works. So if you're keeping score at home, Foucault, communist gramsci the father of neo-marxism adorno a leader of the frankfurt school habermas a proponent of critical social theory and yet christians well-meaning christians otherwise known as dunderheaded soft-headed christians will read things by people like dumay and think to themselves gosh this really makes a lot of sense it's because they're worshiping at the altar of pragmatism and not worshiping at the altar of the word of god and it creates this issue to where the the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, he's also incredibly cunning. He's sprinkling a little bit of sugar on top of a pile of nonsense. I talked recently about the Enneagram. All of the the basis of the Enneagram and how we got it in modernity has no connection to biblical Christianity whatsoever. But dumb Christians are like, oh, but it works, but it seems to do well. I have a better relationship with my husband. I have a better relationship with my boss because Mm. it's powdered sugar on the top of diarrhea and they're just taking it down. And so I guess my issue is, is why do Christians, why are we so gullible when we listen to these people that seem smart and sound smart, even though they're telling us, look, we're getting our ideology from non-Christian sources? Yeah, really good and well articulated. Um, and I was going to say, yeah, don't hold anything back here. You know, you're, you tell me what you really think. You yeah. know, um, and I think that I think the problem is it goes back to what we were just talking about: subjective truth versus objective truth. Ice cream claims versus what I like to call insulin claims. You know, it doesn't matter if you like insulin or believe it works. You know, if you're a type one juvenile diabetic, you need it to survive. This is like this has massive consequences if you don't take insulin. And so when you don't have, when you don't have truth, when it comes to religion, if there is no truth objectively, when it comes to religious beliefs or theological convictions, theological beliefs, then what you're left with is just whatever works for you or, or whatever makes you feel good. And that's why I meet a lot of Christians. Kyle, I go, I travel to churches and I talk to churches and youth groups, and we often do what I call the truth test, okay? And what I do is I say, I make claims and I say, I want you to tell me if this claim is ice cream or insulin. What kind of claim is it? I say, Coke tastes better than Pepsi. And they'll say, ice cream, you know, it's preference, yeah. Coke Zero has fewer calories than Coke. Okay, that's insulin. Okay, good. So far, so good. But then things get, they get a little bit confused when I get to say abortion is wrong. And then all of a sudden it's like, uh, and then I hear ice cream, majority say ice cream. There might be one kid who says insulin. And that's because they have relativized. Now, if I change it to slavery is wrong or murder is wrong, are they going to yell ice cream? Now they're like, oh, wait a second. I, I don't want to say that's ice cream. That's insulin. Yeah. But those are the same kind of claims. They're both moral claims. They're about right and wrong. And then you get to religious claims. And I'll say something like, Jesus is the only way. Or all have fallen short of the glory of God. Or something like that. And again, ice cream. This is what happens. If you have a culture that is just swimming in this kind of postmodern relativism, it makes sense that our churches are going to be impacted by it. And you're going to have people who wear the label Christian who now can't think critically about any of this stuff. And they think, well, you know what, man, I love this teacher because he just tells me, he makes me feel good. And I'm not going to the church that says I'm a sinner or talks about people who don't believe who might go to hell as a judgment for their sin. I'm not going there again. It's the whole, what's going on behind the scenes. It's this stuff has all become subjective preference claims. Francis Schaeffer, you know, almost prophetically talked about this back like 40 years ago, maybe longer, 50 years ago. He was talking about, man, we need to get truth right. And if we don't get truth right, everything, the dominoes are going to start falling. 
and that's and we're we're kind of living right now in in the consequences uh, the aftermath of all this when we're living through second timothy 4 where we want to have our ears tickled and we don't want to be challenged by anything mm. and that has a lot to do with parenting and how your parents would would not let you be challenged they wouldn't let you cry they wouldn't let you pick yourself up off the pavement after you fell down and then you mm. get these adults that also don't want to be challenged and want their bosses to tell them how nice they are and how wonderful it is that they even decided to show up to work today as opposed to well we have standards here and you need to meet them but the overall mm. idea here tim is that Christians are not equipped for this fight because, I mean, I, my skin was crawling as you're describing this ice cream insulin thing because to be able to equivocate somehow on the issue of abortion and to not be able to see mm. it, it's because we're, we're living downstream of culture. We're living downstream yeah. of the law because for 50 years, the law of the land was, yeah, sure, kill your baby. It's not even really a baby. This trimester thing, which wasn't even real scientifically, like it doesn't become something different on at the end of trimester one and the beginning of trimester mm -hmm. two. It's the same thing uh, the whole way. But we've just been marinating in this witch's brew of nonsense. And then you have, I think y'all talked about it in the book, I don't know if it was the Barna study or, or somewhere else where uh, evangelicals, people that claim to be evangelicals, yeah. they reject core Christian doctrine, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that sin is actually a real thing. Christians are biblically illiterate. And I've been very mm -hmm. open about a year ago, so this would have been 2022, I read 54 books to prepare for podcast interviews, I didn't read that many chapters of the Bible. So I was very literate in the words of people, some of which were Christian, some of which were not, but I didn't spend that amount of time in the word of God. And you know why? It's because a lot of people don't actually believe it's the word of God, because if they did, there yeah. wouldn't be a half inch of dust on top of their Bible that they have to blow off every time they end up making it to church when it's convenient. But we also don't get discipleship. In church, discipleship's not important. What's important is that you come to the concert, you come to the TED Talk, after an emotional experience, you raise your hand, that church is able to put that in their annual report for the year, and then we just move on and try to plan our next concert. And so Christians mm -hmm. are just ill-equipped for this. And for every Tim Barnett and Elisa Childers and John Cooper and Greg Kokel and you know Kyle Thompson out there, there's a whole bunch of people in culture telling them, hey, everything's relative, don't worry about it. So I don't even really have a question in there, Tim, other than the fact that I lament yeah. the fact that so many Christians are just not really ready to go for this fight. Well, you, you you did raise, I think, an important thing that we can hit on here, and that is that it is hard. Carl Truman makes this point. He's like, it's hard to even define what an evangelical is anymore. So you have like, along with the hashtag deconstruction, you're going to see the hashtag exvangelical. Mm -hmm. And this is someone saying, this is what I'm leaving, right? And we talked a little bit about that a moment ago. Here's the thing. When I when I talk to someone who says they're exvangelical, what I want to know is, what do you think an evangelical is? Sure. Because oftentimes, I mean, this is what the studies show, Ligonier, you know, this study from last year, 2022, well, I guess two years ago, it said, he, they found that 40% of evangelical Christians did not believe that Jesus was God. They just thought he was a good teacher. Yeah. I mean, hold on a second. I mean, when I read that statistic, I thought, what do you do with you, that? So you're saying these people are identifying as evangelical, but according to like church history, they're not even Christian. How can you be an evangelical non-Christian? Because this is a this is a, an essential doctrine, the deity of Christ. This is not a secondary thing. And this is just one of many things they found in this study. And so, man, we have done a bad job. It goes back to what you're saying with biblical literacy. We are so biblically illiterate. People, I get messages all the time. It's, it's frustrating. It's, well, I'm, it, it's, it's sad. But it's also frustrating when someone sends me a, a meme or a tweet or a TikTok and they say, man, could you, I don't know what to say to this. Could you please respond? And I'm thinking my first, my first thought after reading the challenge is you need me to refute this. Mm. This is like, and, and again, it's so it's sad and frustrating at the same time because I feel for them because we as a church have not done a good job training these individuals. And so now they're out there in the world surfing on cyber, you know, on the social media accounts. And it is like, man, there are challenges one after the other. You watch some of these videos and it's like, I get it. I get why people are deconstructing when they have no roots, when they have no foundation, because this stuff, the rhetoric is so powerful but there's no substance in much of this stuff, you know? 
Um, deconstruct. We talk about this one in the book and I've and on other videos. This one uh, girl who goes by deconstructing girl or deconstruction girl. She's got this whole account, and she says this: the primary doctrine, the central doctrine of Christianity, is child sacrifice. That's what you got to believe in: child sacrifice. And I'm thinking, man, I asked my kids that. I got three little girls at home: 12, 10, and seven. And my ten-year-old's like, wait, Jesus. He, he was a full grown man, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, he was like 30 years old, you know? It was not, and by the way, he gave his own life. They know that. He gave his own life as a sacrifice. He was, a, he was, he was willing, he wasn't forced. And I mean, just like, so my kids know how to refute this, but there are full grown adults who think, yeah, this is so good. In fact, the caption of this, of this Instagram post was, there's no comebacks to this one. And I'm thinking, Wow, the confidence behind such a uh, ridiculous claim um, is just tragic. I mean, that was a train wreck. Uh, but there's that kind of thing is all over the place. And these it's, deconstructions are patting themselves on the back for these lame, ridiculous uh, tweets that they come up with. Well, I'm going to have to go do a heavy bag routine after this conversation because I'm like furious at all this stupidity. But the thing is, is, is Tim, if we can't deal with the simple objections, we'll never be able to deal with the complicated ones. And so one thing that mm -hmm. I do is I did a, a podcast and I turned it into a PDF. It's how to engage the top 18 pro-abortion arguments. Because if you mm -hmm. can't answer my body, my choice cogently and succinctly and directly, then how are you going to answer the question about rape or incest? Like something that's more emotional mm -hmm. and has more things charged to it. But- one of the things about deconstruction is you got a lot of dummies. You got a lot of ignorant people that have these big followings on deconstruction because most of the people or all the people in their audience are also dummies. But then you have people that are smart that are in deconstruction. And so you mentioned Derek Webb earlier. Well, this is a guy that understands theology. And so the same thing mm -hmm. I, I'm reminded of when Jesus was being tempted in the desert. What was he being tempted with? Scripture. But it wasn't being quoted accurately, but it was being quoted, right? There were some key portions being, you know, taken out. But if you don't understand scripture, you wouldn't be able to refute that. But uh, as yeah. I was going through the book and I asked Lisa the same thing, you know, there are uh, different theological, you know, subsets like Calvinism uh, that I think are potentially aiding reconstruction a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, specifically because of the L of TULIP, limited atonement. So I want to read this quote from the book here. Yeah. So this is from Derek Webb. Again, as you said, the former uh, lead singer of the Christian band, Caveman's Call, who is now a self-described atheist, drag queen, weirdo, whatever. So he announced that he had walked away from his faith. And this is from the book now. He announced that he had walked away from his faith and produced a solo album he described as deeply personal tale of two divorces. The songs are his reflections on his divorce from his wife and his divorce from God. His pain is palpable and well articulated. Responding to the Calvinist understanding of salvation, Webb had formerly believed he writes that there are only two options. Either God isn't real or Webb himself wasn't chosen. He goes on to say he may never find out which is true. Either way, my heart is broken. He writes in a haunt in the haunting lyrics. And I got to say, I see exactly where he's coming from. I have I have a lot of agreement here because I struggle with some reformed theology and Calvinism, specifically limited atonement, and I struggle with it in in a very anecdotal sense, and that's with my boys because I've asked a lot of Calvinists this, and I can't get a good good answer from them. But it's like, if you're a dyed in the wool Calvinist, then why do you have children? Like, why would you risk that? And they're just like, well, the the Bible tells us we need to be fruitful and multiply. I'm like, yeah, I get that, but what if you have four kids, two of them are elect and two of them are not? You literally, because you wanted to have sex or because you wanted to do something else, you brought two human beings into this world that were damned to hell from the moment they were created. Why would you risk that? Mm -hmm. And so I can see the practicality of his appeal to Calvinism, to Tulip, to limited atonement and say, guys, like – I desperately wish I was chosen, but I'm just not. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I'm not trying to hang deconstruction around the neck of Calvinists because that would be ridiculous. Sure. But man, I feel like that does give them firepower, no? Yeah, so I, I am not a Calvinist myself um, and have concerns with some of the points of Calvinism. As you expressed, limited atonement would be one of those. Um, in fact, I got a sermon online where I make a case for unlimited atonement. Um, and so I think that there is, I mean, I, I want to be fair to my Calvinist, you know, brothers, and they'd probably have a, they'd have a comeback, you know, um, to this particular challenge. 
um, from Webb. They would, I, they probably want to say something like, "Well, he's still making the appeal to you, you know, to come to Christ, and you are willfully rejecting it. You know, you're hearing the gospel." Now, of course, it does, has, it does, you know, on that worldview, um, that theological view. Well, God's the one who's got to do something now in their heart, right? Now, I, on my theological conviction is that God has done something. He has communicated the gospel, and there is power in communicating the gospel that the Holy Spirit works through. And, um, and so Derek Webb is fully responsible for rejecting what he has heard. And of course, he's going to be judged according to his deeds. And this is going to be a very uh, bad situation for Derek Webb if he does not repent of his sins. And likewise, anyone else who is in deconstruction and thinking, well, I'm just going to wait here until God does something in me. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm just going to keep living my life the way I want to live it or something. That is not an excuse. And I know my Calvinist friends, again, whether they're inconsistent or consistent on this, it's another question, but they would want to say the same thing. They'd say, Derek Webb, you're going to be just as accountable and responsible for what you've done with Christ as anybody else. So I, I'm with you. And it's a, it's a broader issue, too, because there's, you know, there's the word of faith stuff. There's all kinds of theological systems that I don't agree with. And I think some of it is not just bad teaching. It's like false teaching. It's it's heretical teaching. And, um, and a lot of deconstructionists, unfortunately, kind of grew up with that. And they think that's it. You know, so they think if God didn't make me healthy and wealthy, well, then he must not exist as if that's God's job to be like a vending machine for us or something. But that's what they heard from Copeland or one of these other guys. And it's like, no, you got your theology wrong and it's causing all kinds of other issues. Get your theology straight first. And uh, and that's we call that reformation. We call that reformation in the book. We want people to like the Bereans, man, align your views with what scripture teaches. And we all got to do that. I hold some false beliefs. So do you, Kyle. None of us has perfect theology. We are all trying to figure this thing out. But the way we do that is not just meditating in a room by ourselves, mm, you know, whatever. It is going to the revelation that God has given us in his word, through his son, and so on. So um, so that's that's our prescription to all this. Well, but we have to be humble and we have to be intellectually honest. And I'm not seeing a whole lot of intellectual honesty. And this is certainly from both sides because people, they don't want to be challenged. They want they don't want their viewpoints to be challenged. They want their viewpoints to be reinvigorated. And so I heard someone the other day was telling me the story about someone in their life that is kind of more on that left wing, kind of woker Christianity type thing. And this guy mentioned, you know, R.C. Sproul or some of these other uh, reformed authors. And the guy goes, yeah, I, I tend to avoid some of these reformed thinkers because and he just kind of came up with this like intellectual, you know, academic gobbledygook about why he didn't read people that disagreed with his point of view. And it's like, how are you going to like further substantiate your position or change your position to the right one if you don't actually expose yourself to those other ideologies and within that everyone's got their particular flavor of theology but one thing that people are talking about now is quote-unquote toxic theology but they're not really defining mm. toxic right so i would consider the theology of kenneth copeland of andy stanley of uh pope francis i would consider a lot of these people to have very toxic theology because it doesn't have mm -hmm. a higher authority that they appeal to appeal to other than their intellect and i'm reminded of the muggeridge quote we have you know educated ourselves into imbecility and that's what these incredibly talented and smart communicators like an andy stanley that's why they're so nefarious it's because when they stray away from the bible because of their preconceived notions it becomes very dangerous for their flock which is just looking mm -hmm. you, know, you know in a blind fashion towards their leader but i'm gonna read this quote from the book here from the perspective of deconstructionists, there is no false theology to be corrected. There is only toxic theology that needs to be deconstructed. Toxic theology mm -hmm. is a catch-all term being used to describe any doctrine one deems as harmful. Now, I have a major problem with people that describe harm in our modern moment because I've heard a lot of people talk about, oh, church hurt. I've, I'm in the category of church hurt. And where my mind goes is, oh my gosh, uh, they had money, you know, stolen from them by this uh, by this pastor mm -hmm. or the youth pastor held them down and sexually assaulted them or you know mm -hmm. the, the the church expelled them and their family for standing on biblical doctrine and truth but it's never that tim it's always well i wanted to bring uh my i'm a dude and i wanted to bring my boyfriend to church and i wanted them to pat me on the head and tell me how good i was and how homosexuality mm -hmm. wasn't a sin and then they wouldn't let me do that 
Now, there is actual mm. church hurt, but when we create these catch-all categories of church hurt, mm -hmm. toxic theology, and yet they're not grounded in any type of reality, it becomes this just yeah. nonsense of us chasing our tails. And that's, you, you got it. It's got to be grounded in reality, right? It's it's what's true. And so in the book, we describe, you know, if you see someone kind of pounding on someone's chest, you may think, wow, this is toxic. This is horrible. This is wrong. This is harmful. But then you find out that guy just had a heart attack and what's happening is chest compressions because he's doing CPR. Well, that changes the whole thing, right? Now, and so when you know what's true, that's able to inform you, inform you on what's harmful and what's actually toxic. And so, yeah, we're not we we're not saying the church is perfect. Far from it. There is real church hurt. But like you just said, man, there is just like everything clumped into this. So hell, if you tell your kids about hell in this deconstruction community, they'll call that that's toxic. That's child abuse to tell your kid about hell. Well, hold on a second. I tell my kids not to take the the knife and jam it into the wall socket. Is that, is that toxic? Is that harmful? It might scare them. How dare you? I'm protecting. Yeah, that's right. That's scare tactics. Well, yeah. kind of, I mean, it's telling them that this is scary. You could hurt yourself, but that's only because I, I'm informing them that there really is a harm there. And in the same way, um, we tell people about hell, not because we enjoy it, but because there is a real place. And we're warning people, and this is what Jesus did, and so we're following the teacher. Simple as that. Truth first, then you figure out what's harmful or toxic. Absolutely. Well, I I see the clock. We're kind of running out of time here, so I need to go ahead and go to the end. We need to get practical here at the end. So we've done a lot of description. Mm -hmm. Now we need to prescribe. There's a person in your life, Tim, uh, or in the listener's life that you suspect mm. or have confirmed is deconstructing. And no, we don't mean they're trying to find the core tenets of their faith and make sure that their theology is correct. But we're talking about that infinity loop that we discussed earlier. What are we to do? Mm. What should the church do? Yeah. What should their friends and family do? How do we deal with somebody that is in the process of deconstruction? Yeah. So this is uh, really, this is a good question to end on. First thing I'm going to do is pray. Okay. Like, let's not, let's not, um, think the sky is falling here. You know, God can do big things. God has moved in, in this world over and over and over again, and he can move in this situation. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm getting on my knees and I'm praying for this individual. Okay. Cause they need God. Um, the second thing is I want to go to them and I want to tell them straight up that I love them. If it's a personal, uh, friend or family member, I want them to know, look at, I love you period. Okay. I love you, period. Not, but here's all the reasons you're wrong about this thing. Because frankly, if they're close to me, they know what I think. Okay. I don't keep my opinions to myself usually. And so they likely know what, you know, so if my daughter comes to me, she's, you know, 20, my eldest, when she gets old enough, she comes to me and says, dad, I'm not a Christian anymore. Here's why, you know, it's the deconstruction stuff. I'm going to say, I, I still love you. You're my daughter, you know, and I'll, I would die for you, you know? And then I would want to, um, I would want to say, look at, um, I want to maintain this relationship. And I know that you may not like what I believe and I don't like what you believe, but I want to do my best to maintain this relationship. That's going to be my goal um, as much as that's possible. Now, I've talked to lots of people and they've been told to get lost, you know, from that loved one who's deconstructing. It's just like, no, we're here's a letter, you know, no contact letter. We're done. That's tragic. That is so sad just to think about a son or daughter or whoever doing that. Um, so I want to maintain the relationship as much as possible. So I'm going to still go to the movies with my daughter. I'm still going to take her out shopping and spend money on her. I'm still going to, you know, take her out for dinner, whatever. Um, and then I'm going to set boundaries because there's going to be times when I want to talk about this stuff and, and let's just set aside time to do it. So it's not like every time we get together, first thing is, okay, let's talk about Jesus. You know, we'll set aside time to do that and we will do that. Um, and that protects me. And it also protects her. And then uh, and then finally, you know, it's because uh, it, all that stuff, it may not seem like it's working. And so I'm just at the end of the day, I'm going to just put my hope in God. Okay, that the creator of the universe is going to do that which is right. This is kind of like Abraham walking with the, the Lord, you know, looking over Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, I'm just going to trust you as much as possible. I'm going to trust you. God, I don't know how you're going to work in this situation um, or what that look, only you know, but I'm trusting you. And, uh, and look it, we saw lots of people go through serious trouble in the Bible. We see Job, we see Peter, you know, denied the Lord three times. His, his world's a mess. 
And then Jesus says, you know, comes to him and says, um, do you love me? You know, three times. And it's like the relationship restored. And so I'm holding out hope for my loved ones who deconstruct that maybe they come back to the Lord. And uh, so I would want to, that'd be the last thing. Just, just don't lose hope. Well, and also I agree. Don't lose hope. Control the controllables, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I answered a and a question or an AMA question the other day where someone's like, hey, I'm in a toxic co-parenting situation. What can I do? And I was like, control you. You can't control them. Mm-hmm. Like, but you can control whether or not you fight with your wife through your daughter. You can control that. Yeah. But then I was reminded as you were talking, Matthew 10, 35, this is Jesus. For I've come to set men against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And so mm-hmm. the thing is, is you may find yourself on the opposite side of the leisure of your kid. This is kind of where Calvinist theology would actually be cold comfort because it's like, well, maybe they're just not elect, which is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if that's what you believe, then, you know, what can you do? And so, but I, I agree, we, we can't lose hope, but also we have to understand that this is a process. I'm, this is going to strike you as shocking, Tim. I'm incredibly impatient. Like I want to get to the end as quickly as possible. I'm binary. I want it done now. I want it done yesterday. And so when someone comes to me, whether it's a gospel sharing situation or a problem fixing situation, I want to just fix it now. It's like, why fix it later? But at the same time, I'm all about what Greg Kokel has taught me about putting a rock in someone's shoe. And I just might be that pebble that is chucked in someone's shoe. I say something or I give them a Bible or I just make reference to something that I share with them that later is watered by somebody else, watered by a different gardener. And guess what? I may never even know that that person has built their faith back or has come to faith in Christ, but that's not the point. The point is that they came to the Father, not that I was the one that was the conduit. So Tim, we have covered a lot of ground here today. We have done a lot of good work here. I really appreciate all your time, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate you having me on. Tim Barnett, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed our time with Tim Barnett. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Two links for you today. I've got a link to where you can buy your copy of The Deconstruction of Christianity. And then also a uh, link to where you can go and check out Tim's YouTube channel, Red Pin Logic. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>